God, help us uh, during this time to be attentive to you uh, with so much else going on and other things on our minds. Help us to be attentive to you and to your word and to your will and your way. I pray that as my words are true to and consistent with your word, that they would be taken to heart if my words stray or deviate in any way from your word. May they be immediately and forever forgotten. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the course of Advent, we looked at a lot of different aspects of the genealogy of Jesus and the birth narrative of Jesus. Uh, We spent most of our time over the last four weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to jump to uh, chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, kind of dip our toe into that next Sunday before getting back to the Sermon on the Mount later in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, So during Advent, we've kind of done a deep dive into uh, the Gospel of Matthew, birth narrative, genealogy, all the Christmas stuff in Matthew's Gospel. Last night uh, at Christmas Eve, uh, we read most of the passages from Luke that are about uh, Jesus' birth. So Matthew, Luke, uh, I thought next in line would be Mark. So uh, we're going to look for a moment at Mark and what he says about Jesus' birth narrative. Uh, Let's turn to that now. The Gospel of Mark about Jesus' birth, the narrative, genealogy, all that stuff. And that's it. There is nothing in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus' birth, about his narrative, about wise men, about magi, about stars, angels, visions, dreams, Bethlehem, manger, stable, nada in the Gospel of Mark. He starts his Gospel by saying this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. It's just the beginning about the good news of Jesus, Son of God, Messiah. You remember that from our study of the Gospel of Mark. And then he jumps immediately to John the Baptist. Jesus is 30 years old. John the Baptist is about 30 years old. And John introduces, John the Baptist introduces Jesus in his public ministry. And that's where the Gospel of Mark begins. Bam. No Magi. No Bethlehem. No Mary. No Joseph. So we can't go there. So I thought, what's left? Let's go to the Gospel of John this morning. We've covered Matthew. We've dipped into Mark or dipped into Luke. There's nothing in uh, Mark. So John it is this morning. So I'm going to read from John's, the equivalent of his birth narrative, beginning at John chapter 1, verse 1, very first verse of the Gospel of John. And I titled sort of this message, or our time together, uh, Christmas According to John. And so we're going to look at what John says about Christmas. Listen closely. This is the Word of God. So I don't have it up on the screen. Forgive me. You're going to have to listen all the more carefully if you want to follow along with a pew Bible. In a pew Bible, you can. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And uh, this, this word is actually word in Greek. It's the Greek word logos or logos. And it's rich with meaning beyond just word. Uh, It also has a verb form, to say, uh, and it goes back, has Hebrew sort of a background too. But for the Greeks to whom John was writing, it meant, this word logos meant logic 
or reason. And it was a philosophical idea to them of sort of everything that held the world together. They didn't necessarily believe in God, but they believed there was more out there, up there, around there, in there, in the universe. And they called this thing or this idea of the logic or the reason or the glue that holds everything together, the logos, okay? Logos translated here as word into English. So it's loaded with meaning that we can miss in English. In the beginning, the very beginning back there, was the word. And the word, logos, was with God, and the word was God. And now the logos is not an impersonal idea, but a personal, as John goes into verse 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or not understood it. Skip up to verse 9 now. John talks a little bit about John the Baptist, uh, weaves the two together, John the Baptist and Jesus. But I'm going to skip up to verse 9 uh, where he continues about Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is as close as Jesus gives us to Christmas or that John gives us to Christmas. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave, he gave the right to become children of God. We're going to see more of this in the beginning. I just want you to remember these words. He at that point gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision. Does that ring a bell? Or a husband's will, but born of God. Remember that phrase. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Again, images of Bethlehem, Mary, Joseph, John knows that story, but chooses to tell it in a different way to his particular audience. The Word, that Logos, that was from the beginning, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And that word dwelling has all kinds of rich Old Testament ideas too. Uh, it, it, uh, in Greek, sort of refers to, the, uh, to a tent or to a dwelling place. and has ideas of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt. And so he made his dwelling, or he, he made his dwelling among us, or he went camping with us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his very popular paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, says, and he moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. Remember that. We'll talk about that later. The word logos became flesh, he did, and he made his dwelling among us, or he went camping. He invited us to, he came camping with us, and he moved into our neighborhood. Verse 14 and a half. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist can, uh, testified concerning him. Verse 15. 
He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came into the world through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I mentioned last night in the message uh, talked about if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the exact representation of God's being, quoting from Paul in the Colossians. He is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. John says the same thing. Jesus reveals God. In Jesus, we know exactly what God is like. And here John introduces in those previous verses the idea of grace, which is mentioned only here in these, in these verses and once at the beginning of in Luke's gospel. One time there, three times the word grace shows up here. Only time in the New Testament or in the gospels that the word grace shows up. Jesus never says the word grace in all of his teachings. And yet he tells stories about grace. He tells parables about grace. He embodies grace. He's grace incarnate. He lives grace. He is grace. Verse 14. The Word became flesh. He made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory. The glory of His one and only. And you can sort of envision all of the glory that we paint into the birth narrative in Luke's Gospel. Uh, do you remember Gladys' book from last night? And all of the stars and angels and lights and loud noises and singing. The Word became flesh and He made His, uh, and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified concerning Him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who is coming after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace or grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one, is, who has, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father who has made him known. In some ways, that's as close as John comes to the Christmas story. That is John's Christmas story, his nativity narrative. No shepherds, wise men, angels. It's, it's just this, this cosmic view from 35,000 feet or 35 million feet of God sending into the world His Son to incarnate or to be among us, to be one of us, to reveal God and to carry out His will. But there's more. Remember Gensu Knives from the 80s? But there's more. A lot of scripture this morning. Jump fast forward with me to John chapter 3, where the birth narrative sort of continues. And these are familiar words to us. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And Pharisees are usually sort of the bad guys, the villains, the evil guys in the Gospels. Or we're accustomed to thinking of them that way. If Gladys was up here telling the story again last night, she would say, everyone needs to say boo whenever uh, we read Pharisees. But it's not always like that. Pharisees were really serious about the Scriptures. 
like evangelical Christians today. They really wanted to know. They really wanted to do right. They were really curious about God. They took the scriptures very seriously. Verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God was not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Remember in chapter 1? being born of God, being born into God's family. That's part of the, the nativity narrative for John as well, and he picks it up again here. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now we see how it plays out. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. There are both. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Or that word can be translated born anew or born from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Again, Nicodemus asks, how can this be? Jesus replies, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into the heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. A reference back to Exodus, a reference to Jesus' cross eventually. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. And now these familiar words Jesus speaks. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And again, God sends, God sends, God gave. God sends His Son. This is the continuation of John's story of Christmas, or the closest we might come to Christmas in John's Gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. He sent Him into the world that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life, which is quantity and quality, beginning now, for God didn't send His Son into the world. Think Bethlehem. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And so we've talked over the last couple of weeks in Matthew's Gospel in a variety of ways about who Jesus was, about, about where Jesus was, about where Jesus is, about what Jesus does, about who He is. And here John tells us about why. 
about why of the why of Christmas, the why of the incarnation, the why of God sending himself into the world as his son into Bethlehem in human flesh, taking on flesh and bones, entering into humanity, entering into the grime and grit of earth and all that that means. And John says it is because God loved. It is because God loves. That is uh, what John says in no uncertain terms. And who does God love? John says that God loves the world, the Greek word cosmos. It means everyone. It can mean everything. Clearly here it means everyone. You know, sometimes in the New Testament, the, world, the word world means some things. And sometimes it means other things. It often means bad things, evil things. Uh, Jesus, in, later in John's Gospel, in his last discourse before his uh, arrest and eventual crucifixion, he talks about the prince of the world multiple times, referring to Satan, evil, the devil. But at other times, well, in Paul's gospel, the world is usually temptation and sin and the lures that lead us down a path toward destruction. But sometimes in the New Testament, the word world isn't necessarily bad, and this is one of them. It's just here John's way of saying that God loves everyone, everything, everyone, world. But here... Uh, the world has that different meaning. God loves because God is love, which John states explicitly more, more explicitly in chapter 4 of his first letter, which is found in the back, very near the end of the Bible. And this is going to be the last passage of Scripture I read this morning. But very much a continuation of John's narrative from birth to uh, a Pharisee working that out to the final living it out for the church. So, uh, God loves, God sins, God is love. This is John chapter, the, John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible or at home. Dear friends, John's an old man now. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And there's that theme of being born, right? Talked about it in John chapter 1. He talked about it in John chapter 3. This being born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, brings one into union and fellowship with God. Not only knowledge of God, but this interaction with and a co-life with and in God. Dear friends, let's love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is logic. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him, have life in and through Him. This is love. Not that we love God or sang a bunch of songs about love to God. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, sort of the culmination of the Christmas story. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That just sort of makes sense. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. 
This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to, the, to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. Verse 16 and a half. God is love. There's not a lot of ways to interpret that besides straight up at face value. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Verse 19, we love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And all of that, God is love. God showed his love to the world. He exhibited it. He demonstrated it by sending his son into the world to save the world. God is love. God exhibited his love or lived out his love by sending his son into the world to save the world. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Therefore, it just makes sense. Let us live in love. And more specifically, let us love one another. Let us love one another. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him or trusts in him will have eternal life because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, in him, by him, we might have life in his name. So a lot about love and all of that. Which makes me happy that after a lot of work, a year ago, more than a year ago, we came up with this new set of values that I put on the screen a lot, but you've memorized them now, so we don't need to put them on the screen. <laughs> Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to love all people unconditionally, is the first one. Yeah, you got it. And so it sort of makes me happy deep inside when I read the scriptures and see the summation of the scriptures and how the stories are written and play out and are woven together and that what we concluded is what the scriptures seem to also conclude. That right up there of most importance is love for God and love for others, love for the world, love for one another, love for our enemies, love for strangers. And that God, Jesus, tied those together so that they're inseparable. There's one command to love God with all one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, but Jesus won't allow it to be detached from love of neighbor. And God gave us all of these neighbors. He moved into the neighborhood. Do you know why your neighbors exist? Do you know why you live in a neighborhood? So that we can practice doing what God's done with us. So that we can be refined in our becoming like God, becoming like Jesus, following Jesus. That's the reason you've got neighbors. You ever think about that? The reason the people live above you or below you or to the right or left of you 
The reason those people who play their music too loud live around you, who have the dog who won't stop barking, who have an RV and a broken down pickup truck parked on their front lawn, it's so that you can love them. Yeah. We've talked about over the uh, course of digging into our values and especially that first value, what does it mean to love? Aquinas said to love is to will the good of another. To w- it's not feelings, it's not emotions, it's not devoid of those, but it's not only those, but it's action, life, truth, doing. To will the good of another. Uh, John mentioned that we read through as a congregation, many of us, uh, the New Testament this past year. We're going to do that again and weave in the Psalms as well during the coming year. Just a chapter or so a day. I encourage you to do it. Little plug. Jump in. As we were going through the New Testament this year, I was frankly surprised because I know that Jesus talks about love but was surprised to see commands to love in so many different places in almost every book, probably every book, in some way or another of the Bible, of the New Testament. All 27, in some way or another, the idea, the theme pops up. Love one another, love your neighbor, bear with one another, encourage one another, help one another, serve, give, bless, over and over and over, love the stranger in your midst. Love the person around you, and in doing so, you may be entertaining angels. In Hebrews and in James, in the letters of Peter, in the letters of uh, Paul, it's like pinnacle stuff. In the simple letters, the personal letters, the letters about a slave, the letters uh, that teach about how to do church, be church, be the people of God. Paul's theological magnum opus, the book of Romans, It's sort of the pinnacle of it is all about God, but right after the pinnacle of it and how to live out that life of faith in Romans 12 is all about love. How do we love one another? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's everywhere. Bob Goff has written a couple of books about love, and he says in his own life, he says, the farther along I've gone, the more I need life to be simple. It may seem to become more complex, but I need it to become more simple. And so I found that to simplify, I just now focus on love. He's a smart guy, a bright guy, an educated guy, but he's like, you know what, in the end, it's all about love. Maybe the Beatles had it right. All they need is love. All I need is love. I saw this quote, uh, I don't know, a year ago. I can't remember who it was by. They wrote, I used to be impressed by smart people. The older I get, I am more and more impressed by kind people. And I could really resonate with that. And by impressed, we mean they left an impression on me. Not, wow, they're great, but that really left an impression on me. I used to be impressed by smart people. The older I get, the more and more I am impressed by kind people. I remember in seminary being around a lot of really smart people. 
uh, really smart people. All the, the students who were doing their PhDs and uh, just like people with, they were like brains with legs walking around. But I noticed that being smart or well-educated, bright, wasn't necessarily always equated with being loving. There wasn't a perfect correlation. I ran into some very gruff people who had a lot of information and knowledge in their heads. All we need is love. What does spiritual maturity look like? Our fifth value is cultivating spiritual growth continuously. Right? Right, right, right. What does spiritual growth look like? I used to think that spiritual growth was limited to things I could find in Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. All of the spiritual disciplines, contemplation, prayer, reading the Bible, worship, confession, those things like that. And those are all good, really good, memorizing Scripture. But I wonder if spiritual formation and spiritual maturity look like becoming more and more like God or becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more like God, whom John says really clearly is love. What does spiritual maturity look like? What does spiritual formation look like? What does it look like to cultivate spiritual growth in ourselves and others? Maybe it's to be more and more and more and more loving. When I was younger, I wrestled with the question, is it more important to be right or loving? And of course, I'm a Myers-Briggs SJ, so the answer to that question was very easy. It's more important to be right, of course. But an old guy that I knew who was pretty wise and pretty loving and kind and gentle himself said, no, I, I think it's actually more important to be loving, which was hard for me to accept at 22 or 24 when I thought, no, it's about being right. Theologically, doctrinally, scholarly, biblically, all of those things. The further along I've gone in life, the more I realize that being right is being loving. Are you with me? Do you follow? Because that's what the scriptures teach. So we get obsessed, some people like me, about being right and having all of my theological and biblical ducks in a row and being orthodox in every way. But it turns out that orthodoxy is love. And orthodoxy is to love. Spiritual formation is a process of becoming like Jesus, being born spiritually, born again, born anew, born from above, is to become more like God, who is love. Some will argue we need correct doctrine. I need correct belief. And those are important, but they are not everything, and they are absolutely, Paul says, nothing without love, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I gain nothing. If I surrender my body to the flame, I am nothing. If I give all I have and possess to the poor, I gain nothing. We know those words from uh, weddings, right? Paul wasn't speaking only to people who were getting married at the altar. When um, 
a long time ago when we moved from Texas to here, the way it works in the Presbyterian church is if you're a pastor and you move to a different presbytery, which is like a diocese, you've got to meet with the committee on ministry to be examined. <laughs> True. And so uh, this examination committee of seven or eight uh, bright, intelligent, scholarly people uh, examined me one day uh, at First United Presbyterian Church up on Sloat in the city. Some of you may know the church. That's where we met for the big examination to see if I could move to California and we could be a part of this presbytery and this church. And they examined me as to my beliefs, my faith, my doctrine, my understanding of the scriptures, theology, etc. But in those examinations, there's never a question about are you resolved to love? What's your love quotient like? Do you love people? Which people do you love? How do you love people? Isn't that odd? Don't we miss some things as the church sometimes? I think about the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament and wrote about love. And the work that God did in the Apostle's life, it was in the early church and maybe the first two or three centuries of the church, there wasn't a greater theological mind. God clearly did a transforming work in his mind, theologically, biblically, understanding, doctrinally, in matters of faith and belief. He wrote so much of the key New Testament. God used him for that. But it wasn't just a transformation of his mind that God worked but also a transformation of his heart. Think about the person Paul was. Mean, vengeful, angry, ruthless, killing, murderous, and the person he became. The person for whom there was no bigger advocate in the scriptures about love and the importance of love and the call to love. So much in the way of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you're uh, a fan of the band U2, I have been. They have a song uh, called When Love Comes to Town. Anyone know it? Peggy? You like it? Yeah. B.B. King kind of sings with Bono, and they kind of, it's this fun kind of dance. I was a sailor. I was lost at sea. I was under the waves before love rescued me. I was a fighter. I could turn on a thread. Now I stand accused of the things I've said. Love comes to town, I'm going to jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side. But I've seen love conquer the great divide. When love comes to town, I'm going to jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. Isn't that a kind of a cool birth narrative of Jesus? And when Jesus, God sent his one and only son into the world, when love came to town, it did this transformative work in the Apostle Paul's life as it can in our lives, as we are born again, born from above, born anew. And maybe that's what God is after, after all. 
loving people unconditionally, loving the people that God gave to us as neighbors. God moved into our neighborhood, and now he sent us into neighbor, neighborhoods to love the people around us. How is God calling you to love the people around you today, today, Christmas Day, this week, and in the coming year? I'm really convinced that we need to take what God's done in us out there and to take what we talk about in here out there. We're going through a lot of changes as a church right now. It's imperative for us as a church and for us as individuals to be able to take what we do and talk about and see and discuss and hear out there. I'll always remember, I'm not going to tell you her name, uh, but a woman who was uh, a part of the uh, worship leadership at a previous church suffered a tremendous amount of trauma in her life. And um, a tremendous amount of trauma. And was lovely uh, on the platform on Sunday mornings. And I saw her one time at the grocery store just railing and laying into someone. She didn't see me. I thought we had this persona that we would never be that way in here but are sometimes that way out there. And I saw her not in judgment, but awareness that that's my story too, actually. That's my story. She is my story. But God's wanting to do this work in us continuously. Not so much in here, but the, and, uh, the other 167 hours in a week out there. So last reading from the same guy, John. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 1, chapter 3, 1 John, chapter 4. Going to go backwards to 1 John, chapter 3 right now. And then I'm almost done. This is how we know what love is. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 16. You can remember it because this is the other John 3.16. John 3.16, now 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's just sort of how it works. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on that person, how can the love of God be in that person? Again, it just makes sense. Verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with just words or speech, but with actions and in truth. One of the more powerful verses in the Scriptures. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. With actions and in truth. We who have the world's resources. Mother Teresa said, she said, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Okay, fair enough. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God is love. 
If we live in love, we live in God. If we live in God, we live in love. Brothers and sisters, love one another. If you have the world's possessions and do not share, how can the love of God be in you? Let us love one another. It's been fun to collect, to buy, to give, to share, and see these things come through the office over the course of Advent, diapers and formula, jackets and raincoats, toys, all sorts of things that people in our community, in our world, don't have and that most of us do have and have a lot of access to. God's given us the world's resources. May we love those around us with them, yes. Outside of here. So as John said, you can still buy and give, and not just to Christmas, but any time. May God uh, plant within us hearts that are like his, a different kind of generosity, that we're willing to let go and trust him and live out his life and his plan among us. In your neighborhood, among the people that God has gifted you as neighbors, whether you like them or not, whether you like them or not. I'm really grateful for all the people whose uh, contributions, donations allowed us to purchase all of these poinsettias. So um, if you're here this morning and you think of someone who may be homebound in your neighborhood or someone who may be blessed by a Christmas flower, please, when we're done after the benediction, come up and take one or two or three and carry them out with you and through them love your neighbors. Can we agree to that? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for coming to us in Jesus through Bethlehem in your way, for becoming like us, for coming to us, for revealing to us yourself and love. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for putting within us a spark of love, a knowledge of love, and the power to love. Help us to love the people around us in word and deed with our resources that are really your resources. And through that, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen.